First John chapter five is where we're going to be at this morning. And I decided we would kind of like land here because I've been reading first John like the entire book every day for probably the last two weeks or so. Like that's kind of just been like my daily devotion, just trying to do the whole thing in one shot every day. It's been really great, really great. And there's like a lot that I had to say about a lot of passages, but I just felt like this was kind of a good one coming off of Christmas, coming off of uh, the idea of Christ dwelling among us and being with us. And so I thought we would land here um, in 1 John chapter 5 this morning, picking up in verse 4. And John here writes, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Now, as John gets into his, I guess this is the latter portion of his letter, he's writing, and just before this, he's been indicating what it is to be a Christian. He, in chapter 3, he kind of starts to lay out that case. In chapter 4, he speaks to uh, love being a primary marker of those who belong to God because it's rooted in God's love. And then as you come to uh, chapter 5, he then talks about the attitude that the believer is to have and, and their um, kind of mindset. And what he says here is kind of something surprising. He says, everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. What he's saying here is just as Christ was born to overcome the world, he was brought into this world, the incarnation, as a subversive act by God to overthrow the rule and reign of Satan, sin, and death. So, as we have been born into the world, or have been born of God, we also overcome the world. And he says that with this overcoming, this ability to, uh, to overcome the world, it's connected to victory. It's something that's already achieved. It's assured. Again, it's this idea that we talked about kind of a, a last week of hope. It's something that has, is already expected. We can live in confident expectation that this is ours, that we have overcome the world, and that the victory belongs to us. Now, when he says here, what does that mean, the world? Well, of course, it's not just uh, the general governments of the world, and we're not supposed to be rising up in this revolutionary act where we're overthrowing everybody, but rather, he's speaking here to the worldly attitudes, the ideals, the values that are opposed to God. Those things that come against us and, and come against the Word of God, and they come against him and say, you know, we, we want to live this way, or we ought to go this way, or live in this way, and these are our values, but we find here that uh, the world world stands constantly in opposition to God. Uh, John pointed out this way earlier in the book, in chapter 2, he describes it in these uh, three ways. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. So these are kind of three ways that he begins to describe what the world is. And he tells us that those who are born of God, who are Christians, who trust in Christ for salvation, that we overcome the world. That we are able to uh, not be overwhelmed by the world or be absorbed by the world or, or to live with the pressures of the world upon us and that we give in to them. But rather, we overcome the worldly tendency to satisfy our, our desires, 
because we have desires, we have temptations, but we have the ability to overcome these things. Uh, we have victory because of Christ. And we are different from the world because we don't just do what we want to do. We don't do what just feels good or feels right. We don't go that way. We're different. In fact, uh, we find in the Proverbs, we're told that there is a way that feels right to a man, but its end is the way of death. It's different for Christians. We don't just do what seems good to us. We don't just do what other people say, hey, do what you want to do. Makes sense for you. Go ahead, go for it. But rather, we are submitted to God. We don't get to make our own choices in that same way. We get to consult the ruler of all things and ask him what he wants to do, where he's going, how we can know him and enjoy him more deeply. And so John gives us this note on what enables us to overcome the world. We have this victory. But he doesn't want us to be confused that it's in our own power, our own ability. He doesn't want us to say, well, Christian, you know, you are very strong, and so you can, you can do this. But rather, he says, this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. The victory that has overcome the world doesn't belong to us, but rather is connected to the work of Christ and our trust in the work of Christ. So the way that we overcome the world is not through our own abilities, not through our own, uh, you know, determination it's not through our own willpower but rather it's through precisely our confession that we cannot overcome the world but we trust in Christ who has overcome the world it's connected to our understanding of the gospel this is the victory that has overcome the world it's already done it's already finished it's already accomplished our faith our faith it's not the strength of our faith that we're, we believe really hard, that we are like, you know, there uh, thinking about how we're going to overcome. And we're like, yes, yes, I'm like, I, I really believe, I really believe, I really believe, you know, that we overcome. But rather, it's because Jesus is faithful and that he is undefeated. That's the reason that we overcome is because he doesn't lose, ever. You could believe, believe, believe in somebody, but if they have a record of, losses, your, your belief is only as strong as their ability to perform. But Jesus performs perfectly every time. He's faithful every time. He doesn't ever let us down. He never goes back on a promise, and he always has the victory every single time. This is why John reiterates this similar point for us in verse 5. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? It's faith in Jesus as the Son of God which enables believers to overcome the world. This is connected to our faith in his work and who he is. He's the only one who can overcome the world and we can only overcome the world if we're with him. And so it's not our work, it's not our abilities, but rather that we know him and that we're with him. 
And so if you don't have Jesus, you can't overcome the world. If you don't have Jesus, you're going to be swallowed up by the world. If you don't have Jesus, when the storm comes, you're going to fall apart. But victory comes to the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. John continues to elaborate on this uh, phrase that Jesus is the Son of God. This is, of course, is what is declared through the Incarnation. This is what is declared through Christmas that we've been talking about, uh, you know, um, for the last four weeks or so. He breaks down who Jesus is and Jesus' ability to overcome the world. In verse 6, he says, This is he who came by water and by blood. Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. So he breaks this down now uh, in a little bit more of a granular way for his hearers. He's making this claim, who, in verse 5, who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Now what does it mean? Well, he encapsulates in verse Six, the work of Christ for us in this very brief summary. This very brief summary here of how Jesus' work comes, uh, is effective for our faith. He starts off by saying this. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. Now, what in the world is he talking about here? Because all of a sudden he's got like water and blood and it's like, so what's happening here? Is this like, is he talking about like some idea of like, oh, when you're born, there's like water and blood there? Is that like what's happening? In some sense, sure, like that could, that could fly. But it seems like what John is really getting at here is that he's getting at, remember, he's talking about the work of Christ. And so what he's getting at here is that Jesus is both doing the work of establishing his identity as a man and establishing his identity as God. He's doing the work of identifying with sinful man, but yet also identifying with the sins of man and paying for those sins through his work. When he refers to Jesus coming by the water, it appears that as if John is referring, of course, to Jesus' baptism and the baptizing ministry that Jesus had. Because remember, when Jesus came on the scene, he shows up and he goes out to John the Baptist, his cousin, who's out there baptizing people in uh, the River Jordan. And as he, as he goes out, he sees John and he tells him, I, I want you to baptize me. And John's like a little bit confused because he's like, like, you should be the one baptizing me. Like, uh, I shouldn't be like the one baptizing you. But if you think about this, if you, if you consider for a second, what we realize is that, like, in a sense, John is right. Because Jesus didn't have a need to be baptized. Right? As we think about what baptism is, the idea is that as it's, it's this marker of you going down into the water, you're going down into the waters as if it's this watery grave and your, your old life is going down into the water and you're leaving your sinful past there and you're coming up fresh and new, cleansed as you're raised again uh, to life there in this symbolic act. 
And so it's an idea of this cleansing of sins. So as we think about Jesus and his life, we, you kind of realize like Jesus didn't really have a need to be baptized. There wasn't a purpose for him to be baptized in that sense because he didn't have any sins to get rid of. He didn't have any sins to go down into the water and be made clean of. So what's the deal with Jesus going to get baptized? Well, we find that the purpose of Jesus' baptism wasn't to, be, uh, wasn't to remove sin from his life, but rather Jesus' baptism there was to identify with mankind, was to go in and say, as you are going down into the grave and being made clean, I will go down into that grave as well and I will be raised up again. I will be uh, will go down into that place where your sin is. And I will take your sin upon me. And I will go to the cross and make it clean. Jesus identifies with mankind with his, through his baptism. And he says, I am one of you. The second way that Jesus comes is by the blood. Of course, there I think that's a bit more obvious. His blood obviously speaks of his death on the cross. His blood shed at his death, in which he made an atoning sacrifice for the sins of his people. And here John points out that Jesus identifies with sinful man in baptism and then willingly and obediently goes to the cross to, again, lay down his life for us. And so John says he came by the water and the blood. He came by the water and the blood. Now, what is John doing here? Well, he wants us to understand something about this belief in Jesus, his faith. He says, in order to understand Jesus, you have to understand his work. You, have to, you can't just say, well, you know, he's like a kind of a cool guy. You don't really know him by just his teachings, but rather you have to know him by his actions and his work. And his work is one that comes through the water and the blood. He wants us to understand, and he wants to proclaim himself, the truth about Jesus to his hearers. He wants us to understand that the work of Christ on the cross is how we identify Jesus, that we see that he is true, that he alone is our Savior. Now, he has these two things, the water and the blood, but then he throws in a third. Remember what's the third? The Spirit. The Spirit is the one who testifies, he tells us, because the Spirit is truth. John tells us that the Holy Spirit testifies about Jesus, that he's truth. This is throughout the book of John, not, not the, this first uh, epistle that John writes, but through John's gospel, again and again, John speaks about the work of the Holy Spirit and how he comes to testify of Christ. In John 14, 6, or excuse me, John 14, 16, uh, Jesus is speaking there. John records us. He says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You, knows him. you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. So he says, there's a divide here. The Holy Spirit, he says, I will ask the Father to send you the Holy Spirit, and you will receive him, and the world cannot receive the Holy Spirit. But only Christians will have this. But then he says in John 15, verse 26, when the Helper comes, the Holy Spirit, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, here it is again, that description, the Spirit of truth, 
who proceeds from the Father. So the spirit of truth comes forth from the Father. So there's truth, truth. And what's he going to do? We're told he will bear witness about me. He is going to communicate who Jesus is. He's going to testify about who Jesus is. So truth, truth, and truth in the Trinity. Verse, uh, and then we find in John 16, Jesus again writes uh, in verse 13, When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. And so the Holy Spirit we find bearing witness to the truth about Jesus. This job, alongside the blood and the water, the Spirit is there to bear witness about Jesus. This is why we read in verse uh, 7 about this faithful and true word. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. There are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. Now, for us, it would be like, okay, th thanks for, you know, like we can count. Thank you for telling us. But what John's doing here is a little bit deeper because what he's indicating is that this is enough to build a, a official quorum. This would have been a legal representation. In Old Testament times and in New Testament times, you required two to three witnesses in order to hold up a legal account. If someone was going to bring a charge or to say something, you had to show up with at least two or three witnesses who would bear witness, who would say, I testify of what I have seen. I communicate the truth of what has happened here. And John says, I'm showing up with the water, the blood, and the spirit. He's pulling this into court. He's like, if you want to judge, here it is. The spirit, the water, the blood, these three testify. And so John cites these. The spirit confirms to believers the truth. The truth of the gospel. That Jesus has come in the water and in the blood. These three agree. They all testify of the same thing. They're in harmony together. There isn't confusion. There isn't a different viewpoint or angle, but they are in harmony together. John makes this point, and it's a point that is important for us to receive today because nowadays it seems like everybody wants to give their account and they want to say, like, oh, here's who Jesus is. And, you know, he's kind of this way, and these are the rules that he set, and here's how he wants you to live, and this and that. And, like, everyone kind of has this way of how they want to define Jesus. Unfortunately, that's, that's the case. That's the kind of era that we live in. There's random spiritual teachers and churches that have deviated away from the truth of the gospel. But they're kind of have, you know, elevated, or, you know, or not elevated, demoted Jesus to, you know, mostly being kind of like a mascot. Like, hey, like, yeah, we got like a Jesus, like, cool thing in the corner, but like, we have got these other things that we want to do. But 
for John, he says, you've got to understand who he is rightly. This shapes everything. This shapes your ability to overcome the world. This shapes the victory that you have. It's not enough to just say, well, you know, here's some interesting things about him. John's taking it so seriously that he drags it into court. He's ready, he's ready to, to bring out witnesses and to put Christ on trial before the watching world. They all agree. And John urges us not to depart from this testimony. The witness of the Spirit in all that's involved in Christ's baptism, his coming to identify with mankind, his death at the cross points to the greatest act in all the world, salvation for mankind. This is the pinnacle of what John is getting at. We don't have time to be distracted with other things, other programs, other things that could take our attention away. We've got good news of great joy. Isn't that what the angel tried to tell the shepherds? For unto you this day is born in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Savior, Christ the Lord. Three titles, three roles that Jesus would then fulfill. Three titles that were not given to anybody else. It's never been done before. If someone was deserving of those three titles, we should give our allegiance, our attention, our focus to that individual. Christ the Lord. John goes on in verse 9. And he says this, If we receive the testimony of men... The testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he is born concerning his son. So John escalates his argument even more so. He says, you know, oftentimes we go into court and there's two or three witnesses and we hear their account. And we say, absolutely, what they're saying is 100% true. Let's make a judgment based on what they're saying. 100%. Okay, yeah, great. We're going to move forward. We're going to take action based on what these men have said. John's saying, if you are willing to receive that testimony from just regular men, why would you not receive the testimony that God wants to give himself? He's given the testimony of the water, the blood, and the spirit. If we accept human testimony, then shouldn't we accept God's testimony as well concerning his own son? Verse 10, whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. The testimony Christians have within themselves is true. If you are a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit, and so you are bearing witness to the truth of the gospel as well, that Jesus is indeed the Son of God. You're bearing witness as well. We testify that the work of Christ is true when we actively place our trust in Jesus. When we look to him and we say, I need salvation. I can't save myself. I trust in your work, Jesus. 
we testify ourselves when we trust in Him. By contrast, John tells us in verse 10, whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. Did you catch what he's, he's saying there? Because it is an extremely harsh accusation. He's not meaning to pull punches here. He's not meaning to kind of trot this out in a light way. He says, if you trust in Christ for salvation, you testify that Jesus is the Son of God. But if you don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God, if you don't trust in Christ for salvation, then what you're doing is you're calling God a liar. Because he says God has testified as to who Jesus is. He's already made it clear who Jesus is. And so if God has already testified regarding his own son, they're calling that testimony into question. And they're saying, God must be lying because I don't believe him. They're making God out to be a liar. Look back at verse 10. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. Throughout the letter, John continues to mention this mindset, a contrast between telling the truth and being a liar. Telling the truth and being a liar. Those who belong to Christ tell the truth. Those who, who reject God are defined as being liars. Right? In uh, 1 John chapter 1, verse 10, he, sa- he makes this claim. He says, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So if you're somebody who says, you know, like, I, I, I don't have any sin. I, I don't mess up. It's not something that I do. Then he says, you're just a straight-up liar because his judgment is already over you. He sees that you have sinned. So you should receive that you've sinned, and you should come for repentance. You should come to the cross and receive him. Verse, First uh, John, verse or chapter 2, verse 22. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. He's like, look, if you reject Jesus, you're just like a straight-up liar because God has already testified concerning his own Son. Right? He continues in verse 11 of uh, chapter 5. And this is the testimony that God has... Uh, this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. So God has borne witness himself, he has testified himself, and he has given us eternal life, which is in his Son. So he wants you to see this, that the goal is not to get to God, the goal is to get Jesus. The goal is to get Jesus, right? This is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his son. So what, what commonly happens is that we think, okay, like there's an afterlife. I want to live forever. I want to go to heaven. And we think, okay, like I got to like do the things 
to get to heaven. I got to do things to, to make it there. But when we think about that most frequently, most of the time we're thinking like, okay, I got to like, I got, like Jesus is the guy who's like, who's at the toll booth. And if I, sh- I got to show up there and he's going to be at the toll booth and he's going to be like, yo, uh, like, like, why should I let you in? There's going to be this awkward exchange. And then he's going to like let you in if you know him. He's going to be like, hey, what's up? I know you. Let's go. And then like you can go in and, and like have fun and he's going to stay at the door like they're letting people in and out. Like this is not how it's going to work. Because we fundamentally don't understand the, uh, uh, like the afterlife correctly. Most of the time we just think that like Jesus is kind of like the gatekeeper. He's going to let us in and then we're going like, to go have like a, a fun party. But what John tells us here is that Jesus is the goal. He is life. And so if you, if you want to have eternal life, you can't have that apart from Jesus. It's only found in Jesus, and you can only have that eternal life if you're with Jesus. See, what, what John wants us to understand is that you can't use Jesus as a means to an end. You can't use him as like, oh yeah, like I want to be in the club, let me in the club, so that way like, then I can get in and have access to all the stuff. But rather, Jesus is the goal. If he's the one who has paid for all of your sins, who has loved you so, so deeply that he has pursued you so vigorously, even when you were his enemy, when you were far from him, when you didn't care about him at all, he pursued you so intentionally to pay for your sin, you think, you think then when it's finally like the end and you're standing before him, he's going to be like, hey, what's up? Like, get out of here. No. <laughs> He wants to hang out with you. He wants to know you. He wants to enjoy you. He wants to be with his people. He wants to come and dwell among us. God's always trying to get to his people. Not trying to get his people to come into like his cool party. That's not what it's about. It's about being with him. The party's only cool because Jesus is there. Without Jesus, it's just an empty room. Right? There's There's nothing there to celebrate. Because Jesus is the hero. He's the goal. And this is what John is getting at. He wants us to understand that Jesus is the goal. Jesus is the end. And so if you seek eternal life, you're never going to find it. But if you seek out Jesus, you will always find eternal life. If you pursue Jesus, the byproduct of being with Jesus and knowing Jesus and enjoying Jesus is eternal life. John continues in verse 12 to tell us about how valuable Jesus is. Whoever has the Son has life. He puts it in a very straightforward manner. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Right? So verse 11, this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. The life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. If you have Jesus, you have life. God has given us his Son. What's the value of his Son? The value of his Son is eternal life. We have the full value of eternal life. Jesus is laser-focused on his people having life. It's the purpose of his coming. To destroy sin, to rescue us, to make a way for us to be with him. He even said as much in John 10. 
He describes the work of the enemy. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But Jesus says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. He's like, I want you to have life. And not just like, not just like, like barely alive on life support. He's like, I want it to be like the best life. Jesus gives the best life, the abundant life, the fullness of life. And this is why he can claim just a chapter later in John 11 that I am the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. You see, he's falling in line here with what John is saying. That he himself is the resurrection and the life. That apart from him, there's no other way to have life. And so if you want eternal life, You've got to get Jesus. The value is found in the Son, in knowing Him and enjoying Him. This is how we overcome the world. This is how we overcome those moments of hardship, those moments of temptation the moments of doubt, when we stay close to Jesus. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. You see, John just spins that little portion after verse 5 uh, or, or verse 4, really just summarizing, restating what it is to overcome the world by faith. Here's what it looks like. The work of Christ. Trusting in the work of Christ. Looking at what he has done on our behalf. Trusting that his work is true. And looking to the work of Christ and in, in breaking it apart into the testimony that is given regarding Christ. The water, the blood, and the spirit testify that this is true. And then of course, believing in that testimony believing in that and seeing that Jesus is truly valuable beyond anything else because in him is life, abundant life that he gives freely to all who come to him, that all who ask, he gives without reservation as we call on his name. And so as we move through the week, as we move into the future, we want to be a people who are looking to overcome the world, not through our own efforts, not by pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps and, and you know, being really smart, but rather by faith and confessing that, like, Jesus, you've overcome the world, and I can't overcome the world this week. i got to be with you. So whatever you're going to do, I want to be with you. Wherever you're going, I want to be with you. It's as easy as that. Trusting and treasuring in his work. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful for your loving kindness. Your faithfulness to us. We pray that that you would be near to us as we 
go through uh, seasons of hardship and difficulty as we face the world on a daily basis, as we experience temptation, as we experience hardship and um, opportunities to sin against you, Lord, we ask that you would help us to overcome the world by our faith in you. And we would return each day to remembering that we belong to you, that we're yours. <clears throat> that you've purchased us with your own blood. And Lord, we celebrate that. And so, Lord, we submit ourselves to you this morning asking that you would cleanse us of our sin, that you would cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Lord, we know that you paid the price for our sin at the cross, and so we call on you again. We remember that we need you so desperately. We need you to be at work in our lives Reminding us of that faithfulness when we were unfaithful, Lord, you remain faithful. So, Lord, be glorified in your church as we celebrate your perfect work. We love you. Amen.